story today. Uh, first of uh, the disciple that we come to know as Barnabas, and then uh, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, it's also an interesting story. I think, what's the Thanksgiving theme here? And uh, I, I didn't try to tie this to Thanksgiving at all. Thanksgiving is not the past, and you're stuck with what the text is today. So. But there's some good things to be thankful for in, this, in, in the narrative today. All of the believers were one in heart and mind. One in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Uh, New Testament scholar M.T. Wright said the following in relation to this verse. Temple authorities thought that they were the guardians of the traditions of Israel. But in the very same city, there was a community which was practicing the life of the true covenant people of God, and thereby quietly upstaging everything that went on in the temple, referring to the generosity of this new called-out community that was known as the Way. This new community of disciples are finally fulfilling the command of Deuteronomy 15 through their love and generosity. Through all the generations before, the people of Israel have never been able to keep this. Point. So let me refer to some of these there. Like, should be no more For in the land the Lord your God has given you to possess as your inheritance, He will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands, I am giving you today. If there is a poor man among your brothers, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Give generously to him and do so without a grudging heart. This new fellowship that is starting they didn't have a recognized authority. They didn't have the right credentials. They didn't have the right education, etc. And yet they were doing what the nation of Israel had proved powerless to do. Israel had the right laws, but they didn't have the right heart. The spirit-filled heart generous heart. A heart that leads with joy for the Lord. A heart that loves the law of the Lord. A heart that is moved in compassion and action to meet the needs of a brother or sister. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So with great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. These disciples were actually living out of a reality that everything they had, they were just stewards of. Nothing was their own. They didn't claim anything as their own. They actually were living like all of their possessions belonged to the Lord. I, 
always like the quote that I read uh, from a little short guy from India, uh, Gandhi, who said, uh, the world has enough for everyone's need, but not everyone's greed. The world has enough for everyone's need, but not everyone's greed. And this reality is now being realized in this community of people, that they have enough to go around where everyone's need is met. Because they weren't tight-fisted, they weren't hard-hearted, they were compassionate. They act this way because the Holy Spirit was in it. This whole enterprise involved a whole lot of faith and a whole lot of trust. The trust of the person who would sell property and put the the proceeds of that in the control of other people. They have no say in it anymore. This is someone else to control. To have that spirit of generosity takes a whole lot of faith and a whole lot of trust. And then the wisdom of the apostles to receive that, to distribute that, that also took a lot of faith. And it took the faith of the and magnanimity of the poor uh, believers as well to receive those gifts with joy but it was the Holy Spirit who took all of these dynamics and made them work for the benefit of that whole community of believers the heart of love and generosity was the gift of the Holy Spirit Joseph a Levite from Cyprus whom the apostles called Barnabas which means son of encouragement sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So Luke presents us with this character of Barnabas for the first time. And he, in Luke's narrative and in Acts, Barnabas is a kind of ideal disciple. He's presented as someone who is a worthy model for us to emulate. So this time we see the heart of Barnabas in the way he's moved to generosity, to care for the needs Later, we will know he's a missionary, a companion of Paul. And then later still, he risks his reputation trying to redeem uh, John Mark, who had proved, earlier proven himself unreliable. So much so, so that he had a conflict with Paul, and they went separate ways because he staked his reputation and his faith that, no, God can change this young man, and this he is worthwhile. He deserves a second chance. So Barnabas, we see his heart, an ideal kind of disciple for us to follow his example. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles. So a contrast is being made between Joseph and Ananias and his wife. Joseph's gift came from a heart that was so sincere that it was an encouragement to all the believers in that community, so much so that the apostles start giving him a new nickname, Son of Encouragement. You Son of Encouragement. I, I don't know the way they said it. Barnabas, you, you want to bring refreshment and encouragement. 
Ananias and Sapphira, in contrast, have an entirely different heart, don't they? They want to have the appearance of a heart like Barnabas, while at the same time keeping back a little something-something for themselves. They want the appearance of a heart like Barnabas's, but they don't want the reality of it. So then Peter confronts them. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Lie to the Holy Spirit. So the image that Ananias portrays to the disciples is a heart like Barnabas's, but the reality is actually a heart that's filled with Satan, Peter says. Satan in the need to control instead of surrender. Satan, the father of lies, whose native language is deception, which means you create an image, but the reality is actually somewhere else. Then notice who the lie is directed to. It's not that he was lying to the other believers who have no knowledge of this deception anyway, except Peter, who's told this. But the lie is against the Holy Spirit, and apparently the Holy Spirit told Peter about this, so what Peter knew to confront them on this situation, to confront this false image that they are trying to portray to the community of believers, to the church. Peter says this in verse 4, Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. See, the problem is not that Ananias held private property. Or that he sold the property and kept some of the money for himself. The problem was that he was trying to appear to have a certain kind of heart and receive praise from people. While feeding, at the same time, feeding his own greed, his need for security. Really what this shows is an utter disregard for God himself. God is not a part of the factory. I can, I can do the song and dance, I can play the game, I can put on the mask, I can show you what you need to see so that you think the right things about me. He has no fear of the Lord. He has no fear of the Lord. It had become about portraying a certain image. And not only in the first century this is a huge problem. It's a huge problem in this room here today. Managing, managing a certain kind of image. We worry about the way other people think about us, the way they will receive us, the way they will understand us. And many times, our behavior it betrays that we really, for the most part, dismiss God and do not include him as a factor in our thinking about situations. And when you get a group of people like that together, 
And they're try all trying to maintain a certain image, a certain holiness that they portray, how good they are, how generous they are, how smart they are, how holy they are, how wise they are. If it is not real or truth, then it is a kind of poison that destroys the church and breaks our fellowship apart. It's a poison because it creates a kind of environment Nobody feels like they can be really honest about how poorly they're doing or how hurting, how much they're hurting, or how badly things are going in their life, or how tired or angry or depressed they really are. See, I I think this is an important lesson for us because whenever you find yourself faking it, think about it this way. In any of your relationships, church, wherever you are, your your work, your family. Wherever you find yourself in a situation you're faking it, it's a clear indication that you're living as if there is no God. You're living like God doesn't not factor in anything, and he doesn't see what's going on, he doesn't really care, he's not involved. It betrays a lack of faith. You know, we have we, we now have to play a game. We know how to use the language, we can rattle our Say the prayers to. But the warning for us in this text is when someone disregards God and yet wraps their actions up in words to appear and actions to appear spiritual and godly in order to deceive, in order to get praise, this is actually satanic. It's a heart filled with Satan. Heart like that at this time it carries consequences. Verse 5 and 6. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. It's such a curious text that we find ourselves in this morning. Uh, not one that I was actually very anxious to. Why death? You ever think about this story? I always read this account and I thought the punishment was completely disproportional to the crime. The Bible has a couple of stories like that. A couple of stories that just kind of wake you up and you're like, what? What happened? He was just trying to steady the Ark of the Covenant, keep it from... Why would God do that? Why would the Holy Spirit withdraw life and take the life that he had vouchsafed, take it back? So just looking at this, it tells me a couple different things. First, it probably means that the crime that I, that I see, I'm underestimating how destructive it is in some way, how insidious it may be. I assumed it was just like this, commonplace, people do this kind of stuff all the time. We portray images all the time. There's something about how dangerous something like this is, I think, that's implied in this text. The 
second thing is, there must have been something particular to this time and this place, because this is not something that occurred regularly, or seems to happen again and again, that we see any other kind of pattern in the New Testament. So there must have been something particularly important taking place at this particular time, with the baby church, as the baby church is starting to grow. So important that the Holy Spirit refused to let it be corrupted by a lie or a false image or masquerading of some kind, masquerading of some kind of holiness. See, Christians throughout the ages have continued to disregard God and just settle for an appearance of things. To be spiritual in some way, to have a little bit of community, to have Jesus Christ as like a life insurance policy for the time we don't know what happens anyway. None of us can get around this death thing, so I'll place a few beds there. I'll do the minimum that I have to do to get. That's no way to live a Christian life, really. It's, it doesn't satisfy. It's shallow. But in this particular time, the Holy Spirit seems incredibly, incredibly protective of the innocence of the newborn church. And I think it has something to do with this. All the believers were one in heart and mind. you know how rare that is? How many times have you been in a fellowship, even in a marriage, where you can say, we are one in heart and mind? There's something incredibly special going on. And the Holy Spirit is trying to protect in the infant church. He's trying to maintain the honesty of these new disciples. He's helping them continue to be of one heart and one mind. <coughs> well, the story continues on. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How can you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? How can you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the man who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. <clears throat> so we see that the corruption of sin that had taken place in Ananias' heart, it began to seep into the heart of his wife as well. It didn't just end with one person. That's the way sin works. It, it has tentacles. It grows like cancer and destroys things. It had already spread into the wife of his heart. Or the, you just say things wrong when you gotta use so many words sometimes. It just comes out funny. That cancer of sin, it spread from the heart of Ananias to the wife, the heart of his wife's fire. They were in collusion together. They made plans to sin deliberately together. They made plans to portray a false spirituality. 
colonies together. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and finding her dead, that would be kind of a strange experience. Oh, there's another one. Let's go. <laughs> the young man came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Great fear. So what is this fear? What is this fear that seizes this community of early believers? I've seen fear before. I mean, as a, as a church planter, I would load up in my land cruiser and I'd drive out into rural African bush in northern Tanzania. And I would go out so far that, you know, the, the two lane wide goes to one lane, goes to a cow path, goes to maybe you can get a bike tire on it got stuck all the time, and I would get out so remote that people hardly saw vehicles out there, and they had never seen a Mzumu like me. Not only am I very white, but I'm very large and tall, and I would go out, and I would greet people in their own language, and I'd say this, and I'd say this to kids, and they would look up and see this giant with and his hair is different, his voice is different, the way he moves is different, and yet he's speaking our language. And this is one thing I hated about my job. I would literally scare the pee out of children. <laughs> and it happened to me on a regular basis. You talk about making people feel bad. <laughs> I felt pretty bad about that. I don't think that's the kind of fear that's being talked about here. I think the fear that is being talked about here comes to a community or people who realize that they've been playing to the wrong crowd, who realize they have disregarded God as a factor in the decision-making process. They've underestimated the role that God plays and his power to interact and intervene in human life. See, our God is not tame. He's not tame. He doesn't ask our permission before he acts unilaterally in ways that affect us very personally. He doesn't. He's not controlled by us. Sometimes when he moves like that, he does something in, in our life that causes us to wake up to the fact that he is, in fact, there. When I wake up to his presence, many times I realize, whoa, I have been playing to the wrong audience. I went into this room, I tried to size up the situation, I, I tried to figure out who are the power players, who are the, and you realize, whoa, King is in the corner there, standing watching all of this. He's the one who controls everything. And that's that kind of fear that I think sees these early group of Christians. God is real. He has an agenda. He's going to have his way. Some things are important to him. He's teaching the church a lesson. 
great fear that seizes the church, the whole church in Acts chapter 5, is something that would cause every disciple to re-examine their motives. Wouldn't, wouldn't you think things through again? Whoa, people are dropping dead. What is going on here? It would take something like that, maybe, to cause some people to look deep into their own heart, to ask questions of their own motives. And it's a good question for every disciple of Jesus to ask. I consider the Lord in this, or am I playing some kind of game? If I inquire of the Lord in this, or am I just going through the motions, trying to appear a certain way? That's a question that every one of us in this room needs to sit with. Two unique things happened in today's text. And I, I wonder how these are connected. I can't suss it all out for some of this. I've said it's British. I've uh, lived in places that spoke British English, English for a long time. But the, the two unique things first, the generosity of the church. This is unique, the way they are sharing, for one, the way they are one heart and one mind. It is something that every church aspires to. I hope in some way to have that level of fellowship, to be that kind of love and support for one another, that is beautiful. That turns heads. That changes the reality around you. Taking care of everyone's need. This, this kind of oneness of heart and mind has hardly existed in human history. This kind of sharing all things in common is something special that's enabled by the Holy Spirit. That's one unique thing going on in this text. And second is this instant kind of judgment of the Holy Spirit that takes place against Ananias and Sapphira. This is not a normal pattern that we see in Scripture. The only other time anything like this is mentioned is Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 11.30 about some people falling sick and even dying after taking the Lord's Supper inappropriately. And both of these things are things that cause you to wake up. What is going on? And the Lord is teaching a lesson. The Spirit is teaching a lesson in these years. So the takeaway I'd like you to have from today's lesson, let's, whatever else we are, we don't have to be spectacular. We don't have to be this, that, or the other. It's okay if you have a song leader who wears white sneakers and a preacher who trips over his word but can't get them on and fumbles and, you know, says other weird things. That's okay. What's not okay is if we're not real about who we are before the Lord. Real about our needs. Real about our brokenness. Real about how good Jesus Christ is. Need to be honest with the Holy Spirit and with each other. It means don't fake it. Don't play the games of image management. Don't disregard God as a factor in your life situations. And then we see in today's text, too, that the unity and well-being of the church, it is a particular concern of God. 
God is very concerned about the unity and well-being of the Eugene Church of Christ. He has his eye on us. He is acting for our good and our benefit. Believe that. Have faith in that. You know, the unity and well-being of the Eugene Church of Christ, that's also a particular concern of the And it's a concern of the devil and the spiritual forces of evil in opposition to Jesus Christ. Because in an immediate sense, the church is the only thing the devil has to fear. A community of believers who can be, through the Holy Spirit, one in mind and in, in belief and in fellowship and in spirit. Because... As we rely on the Holy Spirit to lead and to guide and trust each other and grow in faith and relationships here, this community fellowship, we have the potential of undoing great evil in the community around us. Based on uh, 
your age, it says to the young and old, or your gender, or that as a man or a woman, or your socioeconomic standing. Both men and women, my servants. There was no one lower than a servant position in ancient society. The Holy Spirit goes all these places. All of the estrangement in human relationships, when heaven invades earth, those things, that brokenness begins to be undone. We know the story in Genesis of the fall of humanity. You can read that in the first chapters of Genesis. But through the love and sacrifice of Jesus and Christ, of Jesus Christ, and what He did, the way He lived, and what He makes available to us, paradise is now being restored. And it's heaven invading the hearts of flesh that we become a temple of the Holy Spirit. Everywhere the perfection of heaven goes, everywhere the kingdom of God goes, it fixes and it does what has been broken in this world and this earth. Then in Acts chapter 2 and 3, it talks about the marks of the church, and this is what I keep bringing us back to, the things that they devoted themselves to, teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, prayer. These are the four marks of the church. And when you disregard some of these, when you leave some of these things out as a church, that to that extent, that church is out of balance and unhealthy. And then I said, if you want Acts 2 kind of results, your life or in the life of this church, you're going to need Acts 2 kinds of devotion. Acts 2 kinds of devotion. They were serious about this. The Holy Spirit was serious about this. They were devoted to these things. And from looking from the, that these early chapters in, in Acts, it's, it, it's clear that the only appropriate human responses to the Spirit's movement are repentance and devotion. Repentance and devotion. That should be our response to the Holy Spirit working among us. <coughs> then in Acts chapter 4 and 5, this one there. It's not in my slides, maybe I missed the slide. See another preacher mistake there. The grace of God covers a lot. Uh, we talked in chapter 3 and 4 of Acts about how the Spirit uh, works, and if you do the next right thing, He will help lead you to your next step. So, remember when we talked about Peter being so bold and courageous? He was bold and courageous in the situations around him. He didn't shrink back. He said, yes, this is your as fault. He says it to the leaders of the Jewish people. Caiaphas and Annas and that whole high priest family. He does, and it, it, it says that they were amazed at the courage of Peter and John, and they took note that he, these men, had been together with Jesus. They took note of that. Because these men had a history with Jesus Christ. As you want to know the secret to becoming bold and courageous for the Lord, it's spending time with the Lord. It's taking the next right step with the Lord. And uh, don't fret if that next right step is something small and, and humble and 
I said, if you want the courage of a lion, you need some kitten-sized experiences first to build up to that. So what's your next right thing? I think that's the invitation that we're given. And then finally, from Acts chapter 4 and 5, being honest, being honest, the Holy Spirit with each other. We need to be a fellowship that's able to be honest with each other and ask that yourself that question. With whatever I'm carrying, what I'm doing here, who am I performing for? Whose opinion do I think really matters here? Keep that question before you. It's a tool to examine your heart and your mind, your thoughts, your motives, and situations. Because we need to be a fellowship that's able to be honest with each other. Unity and the well-being of the church are a particular concern of God. Trust that the Lord will provide the means necessary for our unity and our flourishing. When we make God the center of what we are doing in truth, and not something we're just performing for or faking or anything like that, He's going to take care of the flourishing and well being of His church. He's going to take care of it. We have to trust that. We have to have faith in that. So I hope these words reach you in some way and you hear them in a way that causes you to think, okay, Lord, what's my next step together? Uh, it causes you to re-examine your thoughts and your motives. What are you, what are you here for? What are you, what are you trying to get out of this? Who are you playing to? The Lord is going to get us where he needs us to go. And we have tough lessons to learn between now and serve you.